You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, Hollywood's big night, breaking up the underground economy, and inside York Region. But we begin with the dollars and cents. Here's Tina Cortez. Earlier this week, the federal budget was presented. The document of almost 800 pages seems to include something for everyone. $101.4 billion in new spending with the highlights and what's in it for you. The MP for King Vaughn and Minister of Seniors, Deb Schult. Minister Schult, let's get right to it. What are the big ticket items? Well, Tina, thank you very much for having me back on the region. I really appreciate the opportunity to share the great news uh, with your listeners. Uh, It's a, a great budget for Canadians and for businesses and our environment. And as you may already have seen, we are continuing to support the fight against the virus because that's the main thing on everyone's mind right now. We have to fight this virus and defeat it. We need to extend support to Canadians and businesses to get them through to the other side and then ensure that we have a robust, fair and greener recovery. So this is uh, some of the big tickets uh, to help us to do that is the $30 billion investment to build a Canada-wide early learning and child care system, which aims to reduce the fees for regulated child care by uh, almost 50% by 2022 and with a goal of reaching $10 a day on average by 2026. Another big ticket item is our investing of $17.6 billion in a green recovery that helps Canada reach its target to conserve 25% of Canada's lands and oceans by 2025, that's not far away, and to exceed our Paris targets to reduce emissions and move forward on our path to reach net zero emissions by 2050. So these are just a couple of things um, that I'm pretty excited about. But obviously, being the Minister of Seniors, I'm really excited about what's in the budget for seniors. Mm -hmm. Let's get to that. Okay, so we're delivering on our, on our promise to increase the old age security by 10% for Canadians 75 years and older. We're investing additional $3 billion to support provinces and territories to ensure standards for long-term care are applied and that we get permanent changes um, made in that long-term care uh, system. As seniors age, you know that they face becoming more disabled, they need more support, they have rising health care costs, they may become widowed, and they face running out of savings. So you know that we are we're there with our um, old age security increase for those 75 and older, but we're also there knowing that that seniors want to stay in their homes, they want to age in their homes, so we have a brand new program for seniors that's investing $90 million for a new Age Well at Home initiative. And this is going to fund services by community groups that are going to help seniors live longer at home. So this is just some of the things that are in the budget that are pretty exciting for seniors. So before we get into the Age Well at Home program, in terms of the bump for the old age security, when will our seniors see that? So what they're going to um, see is a $500 one-time payment in August, and then the uh, permanent increase will be uh, on their OAS payments will come in July 2022. 
Now, in terms of this new Stay Well or Age Well at Home program, how is that different from what's known as the home care program that many of our seniors are well aware of in our communities here in York Region? So home care is is something that is provided to support um, typically in the health system. So if you've had an illness or a challenge uh, that you will then be able to tap into home care to often it's to recover and support you during your recovery. But this is not uh, necessarily in the health system. So this initiative is to help seniors do chores that you wouldn't normally get home care for. You know, like uh, snow shoveling, getting volunteers to come and uh, shovel the snow, do the, do the lawn, uh, come in and, and clean uh, once a week. Or, you know, these are things that help seniors to stay in their home and, uh, and this is what this program is aiming to do. It's to target the areas that you wouldn't normally be able to access home care for. And when will seniors have access to that program? So the program is uh, brand new, so we're, we're needing to develop it. And so we expect that we will be able to start uh, rolling out the program uh, this fiscal year and uh, see, see initiatives coming out uh, this year at the end of you know, this fiscal year. So that's early next year. And Minister, can we ask you, why no mention of Pharmacare in this budget? So with Pharmacare, we have been taking steps uh, all along the way because we know how important Pharmacare is to Canadians and we know no Canadian should have to choose between you know, paying for prescriptions and putting food on the table. So I just want to reiterate what we've already been doing uh, in terms of Pharmacare. We've done more than any government in any generation to lower drug prices and we know that, that this, is, uh, this is an important initiative and we are continuing on that journey. So just to be clear, we, we started a new Canadian drug agency to help uh, lower drugs, uh, and, and we, dis- we um, have a national formulary now on prescription drugs, and we are proceeding, and you see this in the budget, with a national strategy uh, for uh, drugs for rare diseases. So we are continuing to take steps on this journey, and I think, you know, you've seen uh, money in previous budgets that have been supporting these initiatives, and we are continuing to move along on this, and discussions are underway with provinces and territories. And in terms of the minimum wage, a change there as well? Yeah, we, we've done a federal minimum wage of $15, so that's a big, a big step forward. Minister, when will Parliament vote on this budget? So there, we're undertaking debate uh, for the next uh, few weeks, and uh, I, I can't say when it's going to come to vote because that's up to the parties uh, to decide how much debate, but I, we've put uh, days for debate on the table, and we're hoping to get it to the vote as soon as possible. Thank you for your time. Minister Schultz, thank you for joining us on the feed. We appreciate it. It's always a pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care, Tina. Our next couple of stories take us inside York Region. The pandemic is hitting Ontario hard. Cities and towns throughout this province are staggering under the weight of COVID-19. Citizens are turning more than ever to their municipal leaders for help, support and guidance. Vaughan residents are no exception. Here with an update on how that city is handling this unprecedented health, economic and societal crisis is Vaughan's Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua. Thanks for joining us on the feed. 
Thanks, Anne. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you to give an update on uh, what is transpiring and also to provide uh, the listeners with uh, some advice as we look at modeling that indicates that uh, this situation with the variants is going to get uh, a little bit uh, even more uh, tough than it has been in the past. And so I think it's a good time for us to, to, to really have this interview to, to discuss important issues that uh, really deal with uh, something that is extremely important, and that is the COVID-19 response. On April the 8th of this year, you sent out a news release. Part of it said, stay home, stay safe. But we also need to talk about vaccinations in the city of Vaughan. What is the latest? What's the information that we know that you have about the vaccination rates in Vaughan? Well, the vaccination rates are, um, you know, we're doing the very best that we can. And uh, the the conditions is is this. We, We have... Uh, in uh, the infrastructure in place, uh, we have uh, community centers and arenas as well as the Cortulici Vaughan Hospital. And uh, we've also experimented with Canada's Wonderland, as you know. Um, the, the, vac- the vaccine, the availability of vaccine has been like our challenge. It's not been uh, the the actual uh, administration of the vaccine and and so like to date you know we, we have over 300,000 people who have been uh, vaccinated and uh, there's something that I want to say that's extremely important because these are the people that are most vulnerable in the 80 plus a category 87.4 percent of the people were vaccinated uh, in the category 75 to 79 85 70 74 77 65 to 69 66.9 um, which tells me that uh, we've been able to uh, to deal with the most vulnerable areas as well uh, you you may uh, recall uh, that we have also put in place a a, and a strategy to deal uh, to deal with the hot spots and we have uh, postal codes that uh, we've made public uh, that uh, that are considered hot spots and our medical officer of health dr. Kurji has put in place uh, a strategy to go into those areas and also to open up the vaccinations to uh, to individuals that uh, that require obviously uh, the vaccine uh, all in all uh, it's it's a uh, a strategy I think that works well because we're uh, attacking the areas that are the most problematic ones. And in the fight against COVID, it really comes down to one essential uh, strategy, and that is how do you uh, utilize the resources that you have, including the vaccine availability itself, uh, to reduce the transmission of of COVID-19. As you probably remember, early on, it was to take care of the elderly because they were the most vulnerable. And uh, as I said earlier, a vast, vast majority have received the vaccine. And then we've moved into different areas where where it was very important for us uh, to to take care of uh, specific groups of individuals, and now this strategy with postal codes, uh, to me, uh, is is in keeping very much with uh, with an approach that uh, hopefully will reduce uh, the number of people who are contacting COVID nineteen. But there's no question about that. The third wave, uh, if we look at modeling, uh, some models are sh- are stating that it could be between eighteen thousand to thirty thousand daily, uh, that would mean that the healthcare system will be uh, under a lot of stress. And, and to me, and the bottom line is, we need to get also 
we have the vaccine, but we need to never forget the very basic things that we as individuals need to do and exercise personal responsibility. And I'm sure we'll talk about that during this interview as well. And it's not lost on anyone that when the numbers come out each day for Ontario and for York Region in particular, that there are in the same paragraph, there are the number of people who've died because of COVID-19. And we understand from Health Canada and from all of the medical tables right across the country that the vaccination helps mitigate some of the really difficult issues that COVID-19 can present, including fatalities. Your thoughts? I think that you're correct, and uh, it's very wise to, to follow that advice, to take the vaccine, uh, to to really use whatever we have at our disposal to, to defeat uh, COVID-19. So what do we have? Well, we have the vaccine. Everybody's been waiting for this vaccine. The vaccine is here now. Uh, as availability becomes uh, more accessible, then what happens is more and more people will get vaccinated. There's more and more people get vaccinated, we reduce, of course, uh, the transmission. So what's the responsible thing to do? Uh, The responsible thing to do is to look at the benefits of being vaccinated. And so that is something that I encourage. The other thing is to, just because we are in in the third wave, it does not mean that, you know, uh, we, we, we have not learned anything from the first and second wave. What it does mean is that we still have to maintain uh, uh, the discipline that we did in the first and second wave. You know, basic things like stay at home as much as possible and limit uh, close contact to those in your immediate household. Practice physical distancing with anyone outside of your household by staying two meters away from everyone else. Wash your hands thoroughly and often. Practice respiratory etiquette. Avoid touching your face with unwashed hands. Wear a face mask or covering when inside public places and when physical distancing cannot be maintained. Clean high-touch surfaces often. Why am I repeating these? And, and I am sure that your listeners have heard these, uh, these guidelines many, many times over and over again. I am repeating it because they are worth repeating. They are worth repeating because we cannot let our guard down against COVID-19. We have to remain focused, we have to remain vigilant, and we have to take whatever measure we feel, using, of course, our intelligence and common sense uh, to to make sure that that COVID-19, the transmission of COVID-19 and the variant gets reduced. The the education for residents never ends. I mean, it's a constant reminder. It's a constant reminder of the things that we need to do. And we need to be uh, really focused on it uh, because this will largely determine whether uh, we are defeated by COVID-19 or we defeat it. And uh, my, my sense is that in the final analysis, uh, look, there are people's lives at stake. Um, many people have lost loved ones as a result of, of COVID-19. And uh, we need to do whatever we can uh, to reduce the transmission. And, and, and these are incredibly important messages to remember because we all hear stories about large gatherings. We hear stories about uh, people doing their own thing. The reality is that we are at war and we cannot afford defectors. We need all hands on deck. 
this is a societal mission. It's not a mission that belongs just to governments. It doesn't just belong to political leaders. We, we can't defeat COVID-19 alone. We need to be in this together. And when we say that we're all in this together, we have to give meaning to that. And I must say that the vast, vast majority of residents in my city, the great city of Vaughan, have been exemplary citizens. And I'm very proud of the way in which they've handled COVID-19 and the variants. Mayor Bevilacqua, may I ask you something very personal? Have you been vaccinated? Yes. Um, vaccination, of course, as I said earlier, is one of the very important uh, tools that we have in our toolkit to, to defeat COVID-19, to safeguard ourselves against COVID-19. And, and so on Friday, that's when it's happened. I, I went to Maple and got vaccinated. Let's very quickly touch on the impact of this this third lockdown stay-at-home order on businesses in Vaughan. I realize that small businesses make up 80% of all of Vaughan's businesses. How are they being impacted, and what can you do to help them? Well, we have many, many programs. We have the Vaughan Business Resilience Plan that uh, we started back on uh, June 23, 2020, uh, the Digital Boost uh, Vaughan Small Businesses Resiliency Program, the Starter Company Plus Program. I mean, I can name, the best thing to do is actually for small businesses to go to vaughanbusiness.ca. We have a real uh, lengthy menu of, uh, of uh, programs that, that we're helping. The, the one thing I will say about our community is it's a very entrepreneurial community. Uh, it's a community that uh, understands that, you know, we have to be resourceful. We have to be uh, really committed to, to the recovery. Uh, I think that we're going to come out of this uh, strong. I think our economic growth numbers will go up uh, after COVID and they will go up rapidly. Uh, there is no question about the fact that we've had, uh, you know, that businesses have been impacted. There's no, no doubt about that. But it's also... Uh, and I think that governments have played a, an important role in, in softening the blow uh, that the businesses have felt. But it's always been, you know, a um, the balancing act between in making sure that uh, the health care and the health well-being of individuals remains paramount and at the same time recognizing the economic and and also mental health uh, um, impact uh, that COVID nineteen has had. So you balance first of all, you balance uh, the uh, the healthcare, health and well being of individuals, and also recognize that there is an interconnectedness between uh, between uh, the the people working and people uh, feeling. Uh, participating in, in everyday life. Uh, I think that shutdowns uh, affect people emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, in, in many different ways. And so it's always that balance, it's that push and pull. Uh, but I've always, I've always said, listen, at the end of the day, what we need to do is to take care of people's health, uh, but also recognize that people, uh, people have needs and, and, uh, and, and need, need to work. Uh, and and I support any measures that allows them to work safely, uh, and that means you know like what's been happening now. A lot of people are working remotely, uh, but there are people in the manufacturing sector that have to be present, and so all measures need to be taken to make sure that their lives are safe and that we don't lose anyone uh, because of COVID nineteen. But there's no question about the fact that it's been a struggle uh, balancing these two objectives.
A very difficult update, but one that has been enlightening. I want to thank you, Vaughn Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua, for joining us on the feed. Thanks, Anne, and stay safe. And you as well. Thank you. Next on the feed, what's happening in Richmond Hill these days? Plenty, even though we are all under lockdown and stay-at-home orders. Here to discuss various things like the vaccine rollout in Richmond Hill, the upcoming Young North Subway Virtual Town Hall, is Richmond Hill's acting mayor, Joe DePaula. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Well, hello, Anne. Uh, I'm glad to join you once again. Just want to make sure you, your family, your staff, everyone that is in your world is doing well and everyone is safe at this point. Yes, they are. Um, Struggling like everyone with these uh, restrictive orders that have come down for the province, but uh, my family's doing well and our our staff at the city of Richmond Hill are amazing. They've adapted to the changing conditions and continue to offer great services for our residents and uh, you know, I really applaud and commend all of their efforts. What do you say to the residents of Richmond Hill listening right now about the lockdown and stay-at-home order? How should they address this? How should they handle this at this stage in the pandemic? Well, Anne, uh, Richmond Hill continues to follow the direction of the provincial government and York Region Medical Officers of Health on COVID safety measures. But this current stay-at-home measure is intended to get as many residents vaccinated as possible while minimizing the community transmission. Now, I know these measures continue to be hard on everyone, but we're a very strong community, and I appreciate the support of everyone working together, staying safe, and supporting our local businesses. So the rollout of the vaccine in Richmond Hill is going, obviously, according to need, but also according to supply. Yes, yes. Vaccine supply continues to be an issue and has meant that two clinics in York Region needed to temporarily be closed as, as the region's waiting for uh, the new Moderna vaccine supply. Uh, despite this, York Region Public Health has now administered vaccination to over 290,000 residents. Uh, about 25% of, of, of our residents have been vaccinated, so that that's great news. But because of the vaccine supply shortages, your public health is, is, is focusing its efforts on the five hotspot zones and for, and for those uh, 18 plus to, to 49 years of age. Uh, now, four, four of these are in Markham and one of them is in Vaughan. As the acting mayor of Richmond Hill, what do you say to residents who may be a little apprehensive about being vaccinated? Well, it's crucial that people get vaccinated as soon as they are eligible. I'd like to remind everyone that all residents over 40 are now eligible to receive their vaccine at a local pharmacy and and book through the provincial booking system. Our our facility at Richmond Green was the first to open in York Region and, and continues to operate very well. We're accepting appointments for all eligible age groups. We like to think that there is protection because of the vaccine, but we also have to remember as as respectful residents, and in particular in York Region, in the various cities, including Richmond Hill, that life is not back to normal after we have the vaccination. We still must adhere to the guidelines. Uh, absolutely, and uh, we, we are uh, required to follow these restricted measures that are in place, and you know, it, it's it's to minimize the community transmission, and uh, I I know that our residents in Richmond Hill are cooperating. They are they are following the orders. York Region Police does does not want to 
uh, overstep in, in their enforcement, and they haven't had to. They've been proactive. They're communicating with people as to what, uh, what can and can't be done at this time. And, you know, through that cooperative process, uh, our compliance in, in York Region, and especially Richmond Hill, is, is excellent with the stay-at-home orders. You know, so many of us are looking to the future, whether it's short-term or longer-term. That includes the Young North Subway extension that will really make a difference in Richmond Hill. Let's talk about its impact, the plans right now, and also a virtual town hall that is just around the corner. Okay, well, we're all really excited to to hear about the announcement in, in Richmond Hill. We're receiving two subway stations in the first phase of construction. And it's a game changer for our city. Uh, this has gone from being a plan on on, on paper and and an idea to to a reality. Uh, the province is going to be tendering out the, the bid shortly for uh, the, the construction of, of this critical and vital uh, transit connection to the rest of the GTA. What does it mean in terms of business, the economy, uh, the social aspect of something like this, the future of Richmond Hill, to have two subway stops uh, in your future, in our future in Richmond Hill? Well, the, the way it's been planned is, is one, one station will be able to take all the regional uh, transportation traffic and all, all the connecting routes from uh, uh, around the ent- entire York region that are accessing that want to access the Young Subway, and the other station uh, will provide for a unique opportunity for Richmond Hill to create uh, a new new urban environment. Uh, essentially, it will it will be a downtown York region uh, where there'll be pedestrian access trails, walkways for the residents that that live in the south end of Richmond Hill to have access to um, this great new project. So that's a boost for jobs, for commerce, for small businesses, for uh, for everyone to have that kind of activity to look forward to in the future. It, it will be, but um, it, it happens with input from our, our community and from our residents. Metrolinx is is now doing a virtual town hall around the city with with the most recent one earlier this week for Baby Glen residents. And it was well attended. Lots of people there asking questions and and um, curious to know the timeline when this is going to happen and and about uh, what it's going to mean for that for them. So we expect more of these town halls to occur in the future and and the project will actually be modified based on the input from our residents. How do people find out when the next virtual town hall will take place or where they can go to offer their input? Well, richmondhill.ca, our city's website, um, has, has all this information. Uh, I, I'm sure Metrolinx does on their website as well. I will be getting out uh, newsletters and communication uh, surrounding this, and people are, are welcome to call the acting mayor's office at any time, and I, my staff will, will be very, very helpful and in uh, pointing everyone how they can attend and how they can have their say. Even though we're in the middle of this enormous health crisis, this pandemic, Richmond Hill always looking ahead. So as we look back 
on Earth Day, which was April the 22nd. What did you ask your residents to do to celebrate, and what can they continue to do to make sure that Richmond Hill is as green as it can be? Well, it's it's an exciting time. This week there was a real focus on, on, on the environment, and Richmond Hill is updating its environment strategy. Uh, we, with stakeholder and public consultation taking place uh, right through this this entire year in 2021, and residents and community groups are encouraged to email greeningthehill at richmondhill.ca. That's greeningthehill at richmondhill.ca. They can add their name to our mailing list, or they can visit richmondhill.ca in backslash environment strategy. And this will subscribe to you for updates and opportunities to share your ideas for a greener and more sustainable community. As Richmond Hill's acting mayor right now, what do you say to your citizens about how they are going to get through each and every day in this pandemic? Well, uh, what, what I will say is I, I know it's I know it has been tough. I, I'm getting hundreds of calls from uh, residents and people living in Richmond Hill that are having some difficulties coping with with uh, with what we're facing, what we have been facing for over a year now, but uh, but I'll tell you, we're we're about to turn a corner, and I, I'm I'm so encouraged by the way Richmond Hill residents are coming together at this time, uh, the way we've adapted and uh, virtually and online, we are continuing all activities. We're helping uh, businesses come out of this. We have a Recover Richmond Hill strategy. I, I believe is is going to help us to emerge from this uh, better than ever. And as long as we continue to work together, I, I know that, that there's a brighter future ahead for Richmond Hill. I want to thank you, Richmond Hill's Acting Mayor Joe DePala. Thank you and stay safe. Thank you, Anne. Have a great day. After the break, the cost of tax fraud. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. When companies avoid paying their fair share of taxes, the impact is widespread. Tina Cortez with the cost of tax fraud. According to the Ontario Construction Secretariat, the government loses up to $3.1 billion worth of revenue due to construction contractors not paying their fair share of taxes. To help us understand the impact of the underground economy is Mike York, President of the Carpenters District Council of Ontario. Welcome to the feed, Mike. Okay, Tina, great to be here and uh, to be discussing a very important issue it across sure North is. America. Absolutely. So our listeners, average hardworking taxpayers, they often end up paying more when some companies or independent contractors avoid paying their fair share of taxes. What can be done about it, though? Because this has been going on probably since the beginning of time. <laughs> well, this, this, it has been going on a long while, but I, I will say that in certain areas, it's getting a heck of a lot worse. So it's, it's you know, like to me, often it would happen along a spectrum. So it could be something as benign as uh, something having someone painting your basement off the books to what we consider the most egregious cases, human trafficking, 
and labor brokers that shop workers around on job sites like playing cards. Okay, so tell me how human trafficking comes into play in this scenario. Well, an example took place right here in Ontario a few years ago where uh, Eastern European companies and individuals that set up uh, basically phony companies, they were shopping workers around and they had dozens of uh, individuals from Eastern European countries living in their basements, five and six in a room, 15, 20 people in a home, and they would go out to job sites and uh, shop these people around week by week on different projects throughout southern Ontario and the, and the greater Toronto area. That was such an egregious case that when the RCMP uh, got, got uh, wind of this, they actually felt it was appropriate to lay charges of human trafficking, which they were successful about, and, and individuals faced jail time of up to four or five years uh, due to this uh, uh, infraction. So what's the risk in hiring these companies or contractors for the average person? Well, it's like I mentioned earlier, you know, if someone's going to paint your basement, well, there's, there's potential uh, responsibilities, liabilities under the WSAB. Let's say someone off the books is doing some work for you as an individual homeowner who's responsible for injuries on the job, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's... To be candid with you, that's not the area of focus from my organization. Across North America, we're going after the big-time cheaters, the individuals that are doing major projects, roads, bridges, commercial offices, hotels. Uh, in many cases, in some cases throughout the states, you'll find healthcare projects. So we're not we're not going after the small fry. We're going after the big fish. And we believe that uh, when we talk about billions of dollars in Ontario, up to $3 billion per year, that's not happening from small fry. This is uh, major uh, undertakings by, uh, like I said earlier, uh, around the labor broker, around major projects. Well, we, use, we, we expose it, uh, and we work with the workers. Many workers come to us and say, you know, I've been ripped off for a week's pay. I haven't got any, any overtime. So we try to work with the individual employees or the employees, uh, and we bring that out to the attention of the uh, of, uh, legislators, the, uh, the, those individuals that would go after what's police, whether it's CRA, and many cases in the states will, you know, they'll raise it up through, through the food chain of, uh, folks that are re- responsible for health and safety on the job site. So, in a, in a, uh, Canadian context, we've had multiple discussions with all three levels of government, whether it's, uh, city councillors, mayors, uh, provincially MPs, MPPs, sorry, and, uh, federally, uh, MPs. We have also put forward some examples that we think are really uh, appropriate in dealing with this issue. So, for instance, the state of uh, Virginia, Commonwealth of Virginia, has enacted a worker uh, protection unit. That unit is tasked with three main responsibilities. One, to investigate uh, issues of tax fraud and underground economy. Two, to prosecute those involved, and three, they have a worker education component, which is also very important to educate both the workers and the public about uh, the uh, about how tax fraud is impacting on our communities. And one aspect that we have said throughout the course of this campaign is imagine what we can build if we can redirect those lost revenues, those lost funds, into appropriate spending in whether it's health care, it's roads and bridges, it's the community centers. So imagine what we can build if we go after that $3 billion lost to Ontario and Canada 
uh, imagine what we can put into Ontario's healthcare in the middle of a global pandemic. That, mm-hmm. that to, to us, is an important question and one that we really believe would assist uh, communities across Ontario, whether it's Brampton or Windsor or Scarborough, they can all benefit from that. You mentioned the different levels of government here in Canada. How have you been working with the government on this issue? Primarily, it's it's uh, education. So our campaign really has been for the last two or three weeks, and and you know really we put an emphasis on it last week from the 14th to the 17th of April. However, educating the public is key, and so we've done multi-platform, whether it's social media, it's mass media through uh, print, it's uh, mass media through uh, radio, TV, multiple. Uh, uh, interviews such as we're conducting right now with a number of different uh, media outlets. So we're working with the public, we work with our members, and then we have, uh, we have uh, individual meetings with uh, our political leaders. We're saying, look, we want to build uh, up Ontario's health care. Let's put uh, a focus on chasing after that uh, revenue that's lost and redirect that into appropriate spending in the health care sector. And you touched on this a bit there. You you talked about hosting Days of Action recently. What was that all about? Well, it's, it's uh, putting an emphasis on uh, a specific moment in time over four days and really working within the industry and the community to raise attention over, over uh, the lost revenue and through uh, the underground activity in the, uh, in the industry. And was this a, a province-wide, a national, an international initiative? So, so we really carried the ball in Ontario, and we worked with our colleagues across Canada and across the U.S. So this was basically over two countries, coast to coast to coast to coast. Carpenters Union's about 500,000 strong in North America, and we really mobilized our members to speak to their community, their neighbors. And then, of course, we have the resources to really get this message out in a big way and through, uh, through media, through communications, and then raising it uh, with uh, political leaders in every city, state, and province and, uh, across North America. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it? Absolutely. So what we've done is we've set up a standalone uh, website. It's uh, www.notaxfraud.com. There's lots of information there. And if they'd like to find out more in terms of like the national and international, there's links there. And they can also send a message to directly to their MP and their MPP by punching in their name and their postal code. And right away that, uh, that connection comes up and they can send a pre-written letter off to their MP or their MPP. So we've had lots of members engaged in that as well. Well, good luck with the campaign, Mike. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Much appreciated. Thank you for your time. This next story is about helping those affected by workplace tragedy. Joining the feed is Leanne Lyon-Bartley from Threads of Life. Thanks for your time, Leanne. Thank you, Tina. So glad to be here with you today. So let's start at the beginning. What is Threads of Life and what support is provided? Threads of Life is a Canadian charity and they're dedicated to, dedicated to supporting families after a workplace fatality, a life-altering injury, or occupational disease. What most people don't realize is every single day in this country, three people are killed on the job. And not only are they killed, 
but they have family members that are left behind to have to deal with that tragedy. And this organization was started by the very family members who have been through a similar situation, and they provide support to families that are dealing with these life-altering injuries and fatalities because they've been through it themselves. And, and the support that they provide can really be invaluable to those that are unfortunately left behind. Can you share with us a little bit about their stories? How did they get to the point where they're able to help and support others after they've been through such difficult times themselves? You know, Tina, that's an excellent question, and and I can't even imagine it myself. You know, I volunteer with Threads of Life and with other organizations started by family members of workers that have been killed, and to see them giving back to others that have been through the same situation is really a testament and a strength to the power of Canadians supporting one another. And, you know, I think that they find some, some relief in the fact that they can support others that have been through it and let people know that they're not alone, where they, have, where they may have felt alone initially. And Threads of Life is right across the country. They, they have networks throughout. And, and it's, it's really important for people to know, because God forbid, if you're ever in that situation, it's good to know that there is a hand to reach out to, and Threads of Life is that hand. So how does Threads of Life connect with someone who suffered a workplace injury or their family? So in Ontario, for example, if there was a workplace fatality, um, the government, the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills and Development will actually refer and can let people know that this organization exists. And I do believe that also happens in some of the other provinces. So that's how there's that connection. You know, they're also actively promoting in workplaces. Workplaces will bring them to their workplaces to talk about threads of life, to talk about workplace health and safety, so that people don't have to come to an organization like Threads of Life. So they really try to just get the word out there so that if ever there's the need, people know that there's an organization they can reach out to. They also have various events. They have a family forum throughout the year that is available to bring together other families, learning healthy coping skills, active listening, and how to help each other in the community. So there's, there's, there's lots of opportunities for them to be able to connect with families, but also to let families know that they exist. And you giving us this opportunity to talk to you today is yet another example of how we can get the word out there should anyone ever be in that circumstance. And during COVID, you know, we know that there are workplace tragedies happening where people are potentially getting sick from exposure at work. Threads of Life can be there to support the, the loved ones that are left behind. And we're happy to support in any way we can. Like so many other organizations, fundraising is key. Can you tell us a bit about this year's flagship fundraiser, Steps for Life? Thank you. Steps for Life is the the big fundraiser for Threads of Life every year. It's raised over $6 million since 2005. Traditionally, when there's no pandemic, it is a walk, a 5K walk, and they happen right across the country. There's 27 different walk locations. And during the pandemic, obviously, you know, we've had to quickly, quickly pivot to doing a virtual event. So we are having a virtual event here in Toronto on May the 2nd. There are other walks across the country, like I said. 
and and they're all doing slightly different things. So here in Toronto, we're going to be bringing everybody together through Zoom. We're going to have a little bit of a activity and um, really just connecting and reflecting and, and celebrating steps of life, even though we can't walk together this year. Okay, before we talk about how our listeners can join in, where do the funds go? So the funds go to support the different programs that exist. So there are family forums. There is prevention and awareness. So as I mentioned, a lot of the family members from Threads of Life will actually turn around and become speakers and will go out to workplaces and share their very personal stories. And again, that's where I I often say it's amazing to see how they can do that, right, and share that, that unfortunate story from their own lives. But they'll go out. So this also helps support the Speakers Bureau and also um, peer-to-peer support and, of course, all of the other work that Threads of Life does to communicate and make sure that people understand that they exist and they're out there. So you mentioned that May 2nd is the date for the Steps for Life event in Toronto. How can our listeners participate, donate, learn more? So to donate and learn more, you can go to stepsforlife.ca. And when you're on the website, you can choose to donate to, to the event. You can also check out the walk locations on that homepage. And from there, you would see the Toronto event. Uh, or one closer to you, you know, there could be one closer to where you might live that you want to participate in. But uh, I'm part of the Toronto Planning Committee, and uh, I'll say join Toronto because we're going to have lots of fun, I promise you. Um, <laughs> but feel free to donate and support any way you can and know that you're supporting families that are dealing with unfortunate situations that none of us want to be in. A good time and good work. Leanne, thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Tina. When we come back, hooray for Hollywood. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. The Oscars are finally here. Movie glitz, glamour, gowns, thrills, spills, suspense. Okay, that's what the Academy Awards used to be like. And then came the pandemic. Joining us now with a preview of what the biggest night in Hollywood could look like is Cam Maitland, film and content specialist, Hollywood Suite, and might I add, fellow cinephile. Always great to have you with us, Cam. Always great to be here. So, in past Oscars, we would expect the unexpected. What are we going to have this year this is the first pandemic oscars ever what do you think it's going to look like i mean i i think it's yeah, more than ever expect the unexpected uh it's being produced by steven soderbergh which is quite interesting he's somebody who's known for being able these days to film in very interesting and different ways uh they originally had wanted everyone to actually be there that was kind of their goal um, but I think as of a, a few weeks ago, people expressed concerns that the pandemic was still not great. There's actually quite a lot of uh, elderly nominees as well, so it's probably not great for them to be there even if they're vaccinated. So um, 
it has become a question. Nobody really knows what it'll be like, but I think Soderbergh is a person who really wants movies to be celebrated and wants the theatrical experience to be honored. So I think he's really going to pull out all the stops somehow. We also expect as an audience to see the reaction as we're waiting to hear who the winner is and then the reaction once we know who the winner is. Will we see that live this year? I think so. I think as we've seen award shows, there's been quite a few. This is kind of the end of award season still. Uh, I think we've seen more and more that they love to still show, even if it's a bunch of Zooms. They have said they don't want Zooms, but they're going to find some way to show you these people, whether it's a, a camera in their homes or something equivalent. So here's the burning question. Before this pandemic hit we all and i know you love it so do i we all enjoyed the theater experience not the case this year and for all of the films that are up for nom- for awards and the actors and actresses as well it, we we didn't go to the movie theater to see their work will people the audience around the world have seen many or most of the films that are up for grabs yeah, it's it's kind of tough to say. In some ways, I think having these movies in your home has made them much more accessible. But at the same time, having these movies kind of uh, on the same level as, as every other kind of entertainment as rewatching The Office, uh, and a lot of these are tough films, too, so they might not be what you're reaching for in a pandemic. Uh, I think it's kind of gone back and forth. Certain movies... Something like uh, Promising Young Woman, which came out a long time ago, um, managed to just have people talking about it and kind of have much longer legs than it normally would a movie coming out in like April would for an Oscar season. So some have benefited quite a bit, but others, uh, I think something like Mank is probably a lot less seen than it would be on the big screen. Do box office results play into the decision that the judges make when it comes to the Oscars? I think famously, no. Uh, Famously, I think people see the Oscars as a way to boost the box office. And we saw it last year with Parasite. Parasite uh, actually made quite a lot of money after it won Best Picture. So I think that um, there's always kind of a fight. People say, you know, why didn't you nominate The Dark Knight or something? Uh, But this year, especially when all the big blockbusters and the high-grossing movies were not really even well-considered action films, uh, it's uh, it's a good year to just show uh, independent films, art films, and uh, international films. So, Cam, I'd like your thoughts on who you think might win in certain categories. Let's begin with Best Actor, Riz Ahmed, Sound of Metal, Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Anthony Hopkins, The Father, Gary Oldman, Mank, and Stephen Yun, Minari. I think this is, uh, to most experts and myself, kind of Chadwick Boseman's to lose. Obviously, this is in his memory. Uh, we lost him earlier this year. Uh, the only sort of challenge he has is Anthony Hopkins, who won the BAFTA Award. It's a real barn burner performance. Um, but the Academy Awards aren't afraid to honor somebody who is no longer with us. And Chadwick has been winning pretty much every major American award, so it, it seems pretty locked for him. Best Actress, Viola Davis, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Andra Day, The United States versus Billie Holiday, Vanessa Kirby, Pieces of a Woman, Frances McDormand, Nomadland, Carrie Mulligan, Promising Young Woman. 
This is the the most chaotic category this year. <laughs> this is the one where you and your friends should bet on it because it has gone to just about everybody. You can count Vanessa Kirby out. It seems it's a great great performance, not a great film. Um, it is kind of down to. Viola Davis and Carrie Mulligan, it would seem. Carrie Mulligan is the critics' fave. She won all the critics' awards. She has yet to win a major award this season. Viola Davis has been cleaning up most of the major awards. Uh, but the, the sort of wild card pick is Andre Day, who did not show up nominated for many awards, but she did win the Golden Globe. Uh, I think my money is interestingly on Viola Davis. Uh, I think it's just. She's won Oscars before. She is a, a person everyone likes. I think Carrie Mulligan's role is a bit more sticky. It's a movie not everyone loves. So I think I'd put my money on Viola Davis. Let's move to Best Supporting Actor. Sasha Baron Cohen, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Daniel, I always say Kalua, but it's Kaluuya. Uh, Judas and the Black Messiah, fabulous actor. Uh, Leslie Odom Jr., One Night in Miami. Uh, now, I'm not sure how to pronounce the name. Paul Racy, Sound of Metal. You got it. Great. And Lakeith Stanfield, Judas and the Black Messiah. What do you think? So this is a bit of a, oh, a category that people are kind of on pins and needles for. Daniel Kaluuya has been cleaning up all award season. But for some reason, the Oscars uh, put his co-star, Lakeith Stanfield, who very much is the lead of the film, into Best Supporting Actor. Um, he was uh, put out by the studios as, uh, as lead, but he got put into supporting. So uh, people are a little worried about splitting the vote, and it's kind of the heir apparent is Sasha Baron Cohen. I think there's so much support behind Daniel Kaluuya that he's still going to make it work. But, uh, you know, it's a little shaky. And he hosted Saturday Night Live not long ago, so he was winning the hearts of, uh, true, of true. moviegoers for sure, That is, and I'm <laughs> one of them. <laughs> Let's move to Best Supporting Actress. This is a very interesting category. Maria Bakalova, Borat Subsequent Movie Film, Glenn Close, Hillbilly Elegy, Olivia Coleman, The Father, Amanda Seyfried, Mank, Yu Jung Yoon, Minari. And again, I apologize for mispronouncing some names, but uh, go for it, Cam. Yeah, well, I mean, this one is kind of fascinating uh, because, well, number one, Maria Bakalova has been nominated for every major award. She kind of surprisingly became this candidate, but has won none. So it doesn't seem like she's likely there. Glenn Close, of course, is the perennial nominee, never winner, uh, but it's, again, a movie people didn't love. Ye Jung-yoon is the likely candidate. She has really been cleaning up. She's kind of a fascinating story because she is quite famous in South Korea uh, and was a, a woman who was an actress. She moved to America for a while and didn't act and then returned to South Korea and recently has this return to acting. Minari is absolutely massive in South Korea. It, it's been number one at the box office for a few weeks. So um, it, it could be this very interesting chance to recognize an actress who is not that well-known in America but is a very well-respected actress in her home country. Two women in the Best Director category, Chloe Zhao, Zhao and Emerald Fennell, uh, Chloe for Nomadland and Emerald for Promising Young Woman. We also have Thomas Vinterberg, David Fincher, Lee Isaac Chung. So another round, Mank and Minari in that order. Where does your vote go? I think Chloe Zhao seems to have this on lock. Uh, she has been winning uh, all over America, and then recently she won the BAFTA Award, which I think really proved. Nomadland can seem like a, like a kind of impenetrably American film, 
But I think the fact that she is also connecting overseas is a really good uh, indicator that she will probably take this prize. Best picture, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Yeah, I think, again, this is one where Nomadland, as much as there's been this back and forth in other categories, Nomadland has just been taking Best Picture constantly. Um, It seems pretty likely. The weird thing you must remember if you're filling out your Oscar ballot, though, is uh, there's preferential voting for Best Picture. So that's why sometimes there is a very surprising win, because quite often people will have different number one films, but their number two film will all be the same. (laughs) And that's why they think something like Moonlight can win. Uh, So I think the sort of... uh, one that may knock things out is uh, Minari. I think Minari is one that just charms everyone. It's a very competent, well-done movie. Uh, so I think that that might, might find a little shakiness in Nomadland's uh, future. I love the suspense. All right, what about Canadians? Are there any Canadians, any Canucks in the running this year? There, are, I feel like, are always hidden ones in the craft categories. They're not very good at writing people's biographies. But the highest-profile one, and the one who seems like he has a shot at winning, is uh, director Ben Proudfoot, who's from Halifax. Uh, he's been working in L.A. for a long time. He went to USC, and he has a wonderful short documentary called A Concerto is a Conversation. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, it's about the... Uh, the composer Chris Bowers, uh, who is one of the few high-profile black composers, a young man, and it's a conversation between him and his grandfather talking about their lives, kind of their struggles, and, uh, of course, filled with wonderful music. Cam Maitland, thank you so much for this amazing Oscar chat. I'm very excited, and I wasn't as excited as I normally am until we spoke, and I thank you for always invigorating enthusiasm in all of us when it comes to films. Cam Maitland, film and content specialist, Hollywood Suite, thank you. If you missed any part of our show, go to 1059theregion.com for the podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.